Thank you for downloading Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, an exploration of the Book of Samuel. This series is a production of Produce North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network and is lovingly sponsored by the Newstein family in memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Newstein for his fourth yard site. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Michael Hatton. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our Pardes podcast on Sefer Shemuel. Last time in chapter 15, we read the sorry events of Shaul's rejection after having failed to fulfill God's command to eradicate Amalek. Shaul abrogated responsibility, placing the blame upon the people for preserving the finest animals ostensibly for sacrifice, and only afterwards at Shemuel's prompting in a conversation that took many, many steps, did Shaul come to grips with his mistake. And that actually speaks to Shaul's general character flaw, which we have seen almost from the beginning of his career, that as much as Shaul is a humble man and a good-hearted man, he has a difficulty taking responsibility for the mistakes that he has made. And of course, as king of Israel, that is inexcusable. By the end of chapter 15, Shaul is rejected insofar as his kingship is concerned, and chapter 16 begins with the search for a new king. Bear in mind, of course, when we spoke about Shaul earlier, the text had indicated that Shaul ruled over Israel for two years. And at the time I pointed out, it's difficult to compress all of the events associated with Shaul's kingship into two years. And therefore, the most plausible reading is, Ushtei Shanim Malach al Yisrael, he ruled over Israel as the only king with the full mandate of the people for two years. After that point, which is where we are in the story now, things began to unravel. Chapter 16 begins with God turning to Shemuel for how long will you mourn over Shaul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go to Yishai of Bethlehem because I have seen among his sons a candidate to be king for Israel. And so basically we see in this moment that Shemuel, in spite of the fact that he bears the news to Shaul that he has been rejected, Shemuel himself is also devastated by these developments and actually goes or has gone into a period of mourning. God tells him, now is the time to look forward, to leave the past behind, and to select a new king for the people of Israel. Shemuel responds, how shall I go? If Shaul hears, he will kill me. This is highly telling of Shaul's state of mind. In spite of the fact that Shemuel has indicated to Shaul that he has been rejected, it's quite clear from this verse that Shaul has absolutely no intention of abdicating the throne. In fact, anyone who emerges to threaten his rule will be put to death. At least that's how Shemuel feels about it. God says not to worry. You will take a glut bakar, you will take a calf with you, 
and you will say, I have come to offer sacrifice to God. Basically, Shemuel is told by God, here is a ruse for you to make that journey to Beit Lechem so that you will not be suspected by Shaul of being on your way to anoint a king in his stead. You can basically pretend that you have come to offer sacrifice. The Talmud actually derives an incredibly important rule for living from this moment, which is, in spite of divine assurances, we do not take chances in life. We do not take unnecessary risks. Even though God is telling Shemuel, here is your mission to select a new king, Shemuel basically says, I'm not going to take that chance. Kashaul may very well kill me. So there's a divine assurance, but nevertheless, Shemuel is unwilling to take the risk. And so therefore God, as it were, constructs some sort of a ruse for him in order to protect him. God says, when you get to Beit Lechem, you will call Yishai to participate in the sacrifice, and I will tell you what to do next and you will anoint the one that I will designate. Shemuel does as God tells him. He arrives in Beit Lechem. His arrival is unexpected. The people are surprised to see him, but he reassures them that he has come in peace and invites them to the sacrifice. And Yishai and his sons are invited as well. Verse number six reports, when they arrived, Shemuel saw the oldest son of Yishai, whose name was Eliav, and he said, Ach neged Hashem Mishicho, surely God's anointed is before him. In other words, Shemuel understands, looking at Eliav, this must be the guy that God is going to ask me to anoint as king over Israel. But God indicates that that's not the case. Do not look at his appearance. Do not look at his height. Givoah komato, the height of his stature, I have rejected him. Human beings see with their eyes, and what they see is the outward appearance, but God peers into the heart. So Shemuel had seen Eliav, was struck by his regal appearance, was convinced that this is the one that God had chosen, and God indicates that, in fact, it's not about outward appearances. It's about the heart and its sincerity. What an incredibly important message for our day and age where culture, popular culture, celebrates appearance, celebrates the outward posture of the individual and cares very little for what they actually have in their heart. And therefore, God says, what really matters is what's inside and not what is outside. The other sons of Yishai are summoned, Avinadav and Shama. They are also not chosen. In fact, Yishai's seven sons are brought before Shimuel. And Shemuel says, God has chosen none of them. There must be another child. Is there perhaps one more? Are there more children that I don't know about? Yishai says, there's one left, the youngest. And behold, he is shepherding the sheep. 
Shemuel says to Yishai, send for him, bring him here. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. And sure enough, when he arrives, he is described as Admoni, as having a ruddy complexion or perhaps red hair with beautiful eyes and a fine appearance. And God says, arise and anoint him because this is the one that I have chosen. Shimuel takes the horn of oil. He anoints David in the midst of his brothers, or perhaps it means he anoints David from among his brothers, and the Spirit of God comes upon David from that day forwards. Shimuel rises and returns to Ramah. So this is an absolutely amazing scene. It seems as if when Shemuel announces that one of the sons of Yishai will be anointed, as far as Yishai is concerned, or the other brothers for that matter, David is not even in the running, which is to say he is not even considered worthy enough to be brought before Shemuel to see if, in fact, he is a candidate. As far as everyone is concerned, including Shemuel, by the way, David is completely out of the running. And then, miraculously, it turns out that David, the youngest, who had busy been shepherding the sheep, is in fact the one that God has chosen. The text reports that he is Admoni, that he's ruddy, that he has perhaps red hair or a red reddish complexion. Presumably, these are features which do not lend themselves to a regal appearance, and we'll come back to that in chapter 17. But the point of the story is to indicate that David is the least likely candidate for kingship. This, in fact, is a repeating motif in the Hebrew Bible, which is to say, it is more often the case than not that the firstborn is rejected and a younger sibling, sometimes the youngest sibling, actually takes that place and fulfills the mission that leads to greatness. We could go through the list from the very beginning of the Torah. Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve have two children, Cain and Hevel, later they'll have more. But Hevel, who is younger, his sacrifice is accepted. Cain's sacrifice is rejected. Noah will have three sons, Shem, Ham, and Yefet. And seemingly Shem, who is the youngest son, will actually achieve greatness. Avraham will have two sons. He will have Yishmael and Yitzchak. Yitzchak is the younger one, although they are from different mothers. Yitzchak will be the one who is the subject of God's covenant. Yitzchak will have two sons, Esav and Yaakov, and Yaakov ultimately will emerge as the one who is selected. Yaakov will have many sons, but it will not be the firstborn, Reuven, who is selected for greatness. Yosef will have two sons, Ephraim and Menasheh, and in spite of the fact that Ephraim is the younger, he will actually emerge as the greater child. Amram will have three children, Aharon, 
Miriam and Moshe, and it will be Moshe, the youngest, who emerges as the greatest. So this is a theme. And essentially, the theme is the idea of what we would call entitlement versus merit. The only thing that recommends a firstborn for the job is that they were born first. To offer a more mundane expression of this, many of us who are parents can relate to the fact that the photographs devoted to the firstborn child are absolutely numerous, and the photographs devoted to the younger children and the youngest child are often much less because the first child is regarded as being something special and unique and earth-shattering. But that's called entitlement. The firstborn does nothing to deserve that honor except being born. Merit, on the other hand, argues what matters at the end of the day is not what I was born with, not the advantages of my birth, but the hard work that I do on my own in order to achieve greatness. And that's effectively the message that is being communicated here as well. David may very well be the youngest of the children, and as far as anyone is concerned, the least likely candidate for kingship, but in fact, it is David who is selected. At that time, Shemuel, having completed his task, returns home. And now the chapter redirects our attention to a different scene, the scene of Shaul, Shaul who has been stricken by an evil spirit, a ruach ra'ah from God that terrifies him. Exactly what the nature of this evil spirit is, is not spelled out. Some of the commentary suggests that it's a form of depression or melancholy. Let's not forget, Shaul was rejected, and Shaul probably is now becoming paranoid that there will be other people that will be maneuvering to unseat him or to usurp his role, and these thoughts begin to fill his mind, such that his servants turn to him and they say, we see that you are stricken, we have to find someone who can bring you relief, relief in the form of music. Yodea minagain bakinor, let us seek out a harp player who will bring you peace of mind whenever the evil spirit of God is upon you such that you will have relief. And Shaul says, go for it. Find me a man who can play the harp and bring him to me. In the Hebrew Bible, a harp is called a kinor. In modern Hebrew, it's a violin. Of course, they share the fact that they are both string instruments, but there was no violin in ancient times. What's being referred to in the story is the harp. One of Shaul's servant boys then says the following in verse number 18, Hine ra'iti, behold, I have seen a son of Yishai in Beit Lechem. And then the servant boy offers six short phrases. It's the most concise and impressive CV in biblical history. Yodea nagen, vigibor chayel, ve'ish melchama, unavon davar, ve'ish toar, v'hashem imo. One of the sons of Yishai in Beit Lechem knows how to play the harp skillfully. He is a man of valor or courage. He is a warrior. He is intelligent and prudent, 
And he is a person with presence. And all of those things are incredibly impressive, but it's the last thing which completes this incredible list, Vahashem Imo, and God is with him. As we will discover, these things only are in David in the form of potential waiting to be realized, and ultimately it will take some time for them to be expressed. Shaul sends messengers to Yishai, requesting that David, his son, be sent David, who was shepherding the sheep, again an indication that in Shaul's mind, it doesn't seem like a likely candidate for the work, but that's what the servant suggested. And Yishai now sends David with a generous offering. David comes before Shaul, verse 21, and Shaul loved him very much and made him his nosei chelim. Perhaps that means his armor bearer, which is an extremely important task and one that speaks to the great confidence and trust that Shaul places in David. Perhaps it means simply one who helps Shaul with his affairs, whatever the case might be. Shaul sends a message to Yishai requesting that David remain because he has found favor in my eyes. And sure enough, whenever the evil spirit comes upon Shaul, David takes the harp and he plays and Shaul finds relief such that the evil spirit leaves him. So this is actually a phenomenal second scene in this chapter. The first scene was all about the unlikely election of David as the future king of Israel, as Shemuel anoints him, not really even convinced that he could possibly be the guy that God wants to become king of Israel. The second scene similarly introduces David to Shaul's orbit, but in a way which is completely unexpected. The evil spirit has come upon Shaul. Clearly, he is in pain. His servants, who remain anonymous in the story, suggest somebody to play the harp. And one of them then indicates that David is the man that can bring Shaul relief and Shaul will invite him. Shaul will hold on to him. Shaul will love him as his own son and make him his armor bearer. And of course, we, the readers, all know where the story is headed. Effectively, Shaul has unwittingly brought into his orbit the very individual who will unseat him from kingship and become king in his stead. This, of course, is a basic biblical theme, which is the divine will cannot be thwarted. If it is God's will that David will become king after Shaul, then not only can Shaul not thwart that divine plan, but he himself will bring it about with his very own hands by inviting David to become his harp player and then holding on to him and investing in him the trusted role of being armor bearer. It's a very similar story to one which we find at the beginning of the book of Exodus. Remember that Pharaoh is absolutely determined 
to ensure that the people of Israel do not become a threat, so much so that he says, let all the male Israelites be cast into the Nile. He will not allow any threat to emerge whatsoever. But in the end, the very threat that he wants to thwart will enter his palace through the back door. His compassionate daughter, who has mercy on an Israelite child, namely Moshe, and raises that child as her own with Pharaoh's support. So not only is the divine will not thwarted that Israel survive, that Israel be freed from slavery, that Pharaoh be overthrown, but Pharaoh himself will be the instrument that brings about the divine design with his own hands. So this is now Shaul's fate as well. In spite of his efforts to prevent any threat emerging to his kingship, he has now brought into his orbit the one who will ultimately be king in his place, namely Duffy. We will see how the story develops in chapter 17. Thank you again for listening to Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, a production of Parties North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network. If you liked what you just heard, please give a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.